Susan tries to skip that doxology all the time. She must not like it. That's okay. She don't like my introductions either, so I learned that today. She was just giving me a hard time, I think. Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. Some might argue that LeBron has surpassed him or that he never ascended to the heights of Wilt or of Bill Russell, but at the end of the day, most basketball fans will agree that Jordan was the GOAT. I mean, after all, he had to retire from the game for a few years to find some competition while he was being bad at baseball. And while his success didn't translate to the diamond, uh, it did translate to the big screen, where he worked with Bugs Bunny and the rest of the Looney Tunes to win a basketball game against the dreaded Monstars. Oddly enough, Bill Murray co-stars in that. Bill Murray must have been on my brain recently, I guess. Anyhow, this past, well, I guess it wasn't this past year. In 2020, one of the highlights for me, not that there were a ton of highlights in 2020 for anyone, was the docu-series, The Last Dance. And The Last Dance was all about the last season that Jordan's Bulls spent together. It was great. They won their sixth championship in the 90s, and Jordan retired atop of the mountain. There was no dispute that he was the greatest. It was the end of an era. And so we come to 2 Kings chapter 2 and the end of an era. Elijah, the Michael Jordan of prophets, will ascend into heaven. And Elisha, his understudy, will replace him. And there's a question in our chapter, and it's not dissimilar from what we dealt with in chapter 1. The question in chapter 1 was, is there no God in Israel, Ahaziah, that you're sending to the Lord of the flies for answers? And this week the question is, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? If Elijah leaves, will God remain? Well, the power that Elijah exercised and the word that Elijah proclaimed continue on. Or will it be as if God has abandoned his people? We learn with great clarity that God hasn't gone anywhere. Elijah may have left, but God's power persists. Elijah may have been taken up to heaven, but his work continues on in a new leader, Elisha. God hasn't gone anywhere is our main idea this morning. Your outline is there before you. Elijah's last dance, those first 12 verses, and then we'll look at Elisha's first rodeo. I'll try not to confuse their names for you, but no promises. Let's pray, and we'll begin working through the text together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word, for the blessing of gathering together in this place to worship you. We ask that you would set our hearts and our sights and our affections on you, that as we love you with all of our beings, we would find ourselves thrilled with who you are, 
filled with your love and your mercy and your spirit, and that love for you would flow out of us to one another. We pray that you would, by your word, comfort those of us who need your comfort this morning, afflict those of us who need afflicted into repentance this morning, pray that your word would bind us together in faithfulness today. We thank you. Thank you for this great privilege. And so we ask that you would speak to us. Give us today's mercy and today's grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elisha, you'll remember, he showed up for a few verses back in 1 Kings. Elijah walked by him, threw his cloak on him while he was doing some farm work, and Elisha burned up his equipment, threw a big party, and determined to follow Elijah as his apprentice. That's who Elisha is, if you needed reminded. So they're on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And Elisha said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And Elisha answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Very interesting conversation as our friends make this awkward travel out of the promised land. And we I think one of the first questions is, why is Elijah trying to shake off or get rid of Elisha? What's going on? Uh, some have suggested he's just a grumpy old prophet and he's not super pumped about his prophetic mantle being passed on to Elisha. Sure, that's a possibility. I don't know. Others have believed that he is putting Elijah, Elijah is putting Elisha, see I messed him up already. Elijah is putting Elisha through a series of tests sort of a, a final way to test his mettle, to see if he is up to following the Lord's command no matter what. And I think that has some merit, and of course we could pick up some application there and say we need to determine to never leave or forsake Jesus no matter what. We need to follow him. The problem with that sort of a connection, though, is Jesus never tells us, hey, stop following me, <laughs> right? So I don't, I don't know that that's it either. I thought this week that perhaps... 
Elijah is a little bit like me, wanted to do the Irish goodbye. You know what the Irish goodbye is? You're somewhere, there's a bunch of people, and then you just very slyly and cunningly, you grab your coat, and you just duck out of the door, and you're gone. And a few minutes later, everybody's looking around like, hey, where did he go? Right? He's just gone. And you go, well, what's the reason for the Irish goodbye? Well, it's to, it's to avoid all of the, the pleasant trees sometimes, or the sort of sorrowful parting of ways. And I actually, I want to give Elijah the benefit of the doubt. I like to think he's trying to save Elisha some heartache of having his master ripped away from him. Ultimately, we don't know. We don't know why this series of questions or why he's trying to get rid of Elisha. All we know is that he did. What's more important is not readily apparent to us, at least not to me. The way I read the Bible, uh, when I see names like Gilgal and Jericho and Jordan, like geography just in general, I'm not super pumped about it, right? I'm I'm moving on past that and saying, let's get on with the rest of the story. But in the case of this chapter, the geography tells its story. Their movements are intentional, and all of these places are tied to the exodus and the conquest. And so they're, they're going to go from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho, right? And then, after Elijah's taken up, they're going to reverse the order. Elisha's going to go across the Jordan to Jericho and then to Bethel. And then eventually he's going to end up in verse 25, Mount Carmel, and from there to Samaria. So we can see in the movements of the geography, there is a change taking place. Elijah is leaving, and Elisha is taking his place, right? God's leader is going to change, but God's power is going to persist, right? Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He hasn't gone anywhere. He's with Elisha, working through him. You also see in these movements areas that call our minds to the Exodus, right? On the one hand, they are going to part waters, just like Moses parted waters and led the Israelites out of the land of idolatry into stubborn Pharaoh, right? Elijah's going to do the same thing. He and Elisha are going to part waters and they're going to go out of a land, this time Israel, of a people that are devoted to idols who are ruled by pharaohs who harden their hearts against the word of the Lord. They're, they're leaving. Also sort of anticipates the exile that is coming. You know, judgment is around the corner in Kings. We also see or recognize that their footsteps are causing us to hear these echoes of Exodus, but also of Joshua's conquest, but in reverse. Remember, when Israel is making its way into the promised land, they go to these places, Bethel, Jericho, and Gilgal. It is at Gilgal that the Israelite men are circumcised, and the first Passover is celebrated. Bethel is associated with the city of Ai, which is destroyed in the conquest, And, of course, Jericho, the walls come tumbling down. There's a great victory won there. And so all of this geography is helping us to see 
the typology that is clear in the text. That might sound fancy, but let me just make it really simple. We are invited to see Elijah as being like Moses, like a new Moses. And he is passing the torch to Elisha, who is a new sort of Joshua. You see that? The the leadership of God's people is being passed on from Elijah to Elisha in the same way it was passed on from Moses to Joshua. And it's going to become more apparent as we work through the passage this morning. Look with me at verse 7. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water. And the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. I mean, what does that remind you of? Right? That's Exodus 14, famously Egypt is coming out against Israel. They're boxed in against the Red Sea. And the people cry out infamously. They grumble to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? And Moses defiantly responds, Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be still. Moses raises his staff. The sea is parted. And the people pass through on dry ground before judgment comes upon the enemy. This is what we are to recall. Elijah is like Moses. And he's moving outside of the promised land, across the Jordan, to the same area where Moses died. We're to see this connection. The question of the text is becoming obvious. Will God and his work leave his people with his prophet Elijah? And the answer we're going to get is no, God hasn't gone anywhere. He remains committed to his people. It doesn't come yet, though. They pass over on dry ground. Verse 9. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And Elijah said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. Elisha literally asks for a double mouthful or a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. He wants to have the same sort of ministry. What he's asking for is the inheritance an inheritance that a father might pass to a son. He's saying, pass on to me your prophetic mantle and all the wonderful giftings that you have to carry out the Lord's will. And Elijah very wisely says, that's not up to me. God's gifts are his to distribute however he wants. 
if you see me taken up, then this will be God's answer to you, that he is going to give you the same sort of gifting, a double portion of my spirit. You will inherit my ministry. If you don't see me, then it's not going to work out that way. What a good word for us. To receive the gifts that God has given to us happily and to steward them but to also trust him to give us the gifts that we have. To trust that God will equip us for what he's called us to without being presumptuous. Ultimately, God's gifting is not ours to decide. Think of 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one speaking the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has given gifts to his people, to you and to me. And our responsibility is not to get jealous over gifts we may or may not have, but to use what we've been entrusted with faithfully, to receive what God has given us with joy and to trust in his providence in putting us where he's put us. I think Elijah's remark to Elisha is basically this. It's very simple. Trust God. He may give you a spirit and a ministry just like mine. If he does, good. He may not. And if he does, good. Friends, we don't get to decide which gifts we are given in this life. All we have to decide, if I can paraphrase Gandalf, is what to do with the gifts that are given to us. Let us receive what God gives us and trust that he is at work in us through those gifts. Even if we don't have the skills or abilities that we think that we might should have. Let us never presume on the grace of God, but trust him to distribute and give his grace in the way he sees fit. And that's what Elijah is telling Elisha here. And soon, Elisha will have his answer. Verse 11 And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. What an incredible scene. Not anything quite like it in the rest of the Bible. They're walking along and Horses made of flame and a chariot made of fire, multiples, sort of the visual is they come down between these two and rip them apart. And then Elisha is sort of swept up into heaven in a whirlwind. That must have been incredible. Interestingly, that's not the focus of the chapter, right? The focus of the chapter is that God's power is with Elisha. This only gives us, we only get one verse about this. 
But how incredible it is. How wonderful it is to know that Elijah made it. He finished the race of faith. He finished well. He's one of two people in the Bible that don't die. There's Enoch back in Genesis, and there's that long genealogy, and it's like, this guy lived and he died. This guy lived and he died. This guy lived and he died. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. This guy lived and he died, right? On and on and on. And now here is Elijah, the only other person that doesn't die. He's just taken into heaven, and we, we are reminded that he makes it. That when we walk faithfully with God, when we persevere to the end, ultimately, we are taken up into heaven. Friend, Elijah made it, and so can you. He finished well. He made it through bringing God's word to Ahab. He made it through that time spent at the brook Cherith, eating food brought to him by ravens. He made it through his time at the widow's home during famine. He made it through the events of Mount Carmel. He made it through that time when Jezebel was seeking to take his life, and he laid down at the broom tree, and he asked God that he might die. I just love that God said, not now, not ever. He made it through that. He made it all the way here to the whirlwind when he was taken up. Elijah made it. And you can make it too. Brothers and sisters, this life is hard. And the longer you live, the more broom tree-like experiences you will have. Spouses will die. Children will get sick. Tragedies will come for you. And you will be tempted give it up. But remember where you are headed. Remember where you are going. Remember the celestial city that is out in front of you. God will get you safely home. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. You can make it. You can make it from the broom tree to the whirlwind. Maybe when you're feeling troubled, you can just remind yourself of the truth of the old hymn. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ will not leave you or forsake you in this life. Keep walking faithfully. Even when you feel alone, he's right there. You might Feel like, oh man, is God even with me? Where have you gone, Lord? And the answer objectively, because he tells us in his word, is that he hasn't gone anywhere, that he is with you. 
God hasn't gone anywhere, so keep pressing on in faithfulness. Plod on in godliness, in the hope that is to come on the other side of the grave. In the hope of the world that is to come with the return of the king. Elijah made it, and so can you. Finish well, brothers and sisters. Elijah was taken up to heaven by a whirlwind. And Elisha is torn in two. Verse 12. And Elisha sought and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. He took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. It's a sign of mourning. Elisha has been with Elijah for about 18 years. He's become a father figure. He's losing someone close to him. And so he is mourning. Has that question in his mind, where is the Lord? And he'll get his answer. God hasn't gone anywhere. Would have been inappropriate, I think, or a red flag at least, for when Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind, for Elisha to go, yes, finally, he was the worst. Now I can get on with a good life. Probably a little problematic. No, no, mourning is the right response here. It's okay to be sad sometimes, Christian. Some things in this life are sad. Mourn appropriately. But don't mourn as one who doesn't have hope. And don't allow your grief and your mourning to cripple you such that you stop walking faithfully with God. Elijah is gone. Elisha misses him. He trusts God and he steps into Elijah's cloak. Verse 13. And he took up the cloak of Elijah, remember that's a symbol of the office of prophet, took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. Right? We're having a little bit of deja vu, right? We feel like we're Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, right? These exodus and conquest events, they keep happening over and over again. Here we are invited to see Elisha, like Joshua, succeeding Moses. Elisha has had his master taken in the same area outside of the promised land from which Moses was taken, and now he is entering in in the same way that Joshua does, by parting the Jordan. Remember what the Lord says to Joshua in Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that as I was with Moses so I will be with you. 
as the Lord was with Elijah, so too will he be with Elisha. God's leader has been taken up. But God hasn't gone anywhere. His power persists. His work goes on. He's still present. The mantle has been passed. And the sons of the prophets, they, they see, they recognize this. They don't see Elijah taken up, but they recognize when Elisha parts the, the Jordan and walks across it that he has succeeded Elijah. But they still it seems, need a little convincing, or at least they're really interested in Elijah's body. Look at verse 15. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let let us go, let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, send. They therefore sent 50 men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? I sort of like, I told you so. Want to find Elijah's body? It just makes me think of like, you have kids and they all come and they're going, we want ice cream. You know, black bear creamery, black bear creamery. And you're going, no, we shall not go. No. And then finally, they pressure you, they urge you until you're ashamed and you say, all right, we'll go. And then you get home, and they're all crazy and up all night, and you're like, I knew this was a terrible idea, right? This is what Elisha is saying. He's saying, there's no need to look for Elijah. He's gone. We don't need his body. The Lord took him. And there is an important lesson here. It's really interesting. Moses' body is taken, it's hidden, so that the people don't know where it is. Elijah is taken up into heaven so that people don't know where he is. I think it cautions us from idolizing any particular Christian leader. There is a good and appropriate way to have heroes in the faith, men and women that we look to to help encourage us and teach us and lead us as we follow Jesus together. There's also an idolatrous way to look at mere men. And I think that the Lord helps save his people from this temptation, both by hiding Moses' body and by taking Elijah's. John Calvin was worried about this sort of thing when he lived. I mean, he had seen the veneration of men and, and of relics, and he wanted to take measures that he would not become a source of paganism or idolatry. And so before he died, he left very specific instructions about his funeral which were then carried out. It was to be plain. There was to be no headstone. There was to be nothing to distinguish his gravesite from any other citizens. It would have a simple and ordinary coffin. And though thousands followed the procession to the graveside service, 
just a few months later, when foreigners came and desired to visit his burial site, no one could identify it among the fresh mounds. His humility was intended to caution people from looking to him rather than to the Lord. It was meant to take the eyes of men from him and his ministry to the God he served. He was content to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. My hope is that we would all aspire to such a goal. To be faithful to the Lord. To die faithfully. To make it like Elijah. And then be happy to be forgotten so long as God is glorified. You see, Elijah is gone. But God is not. God's leaders change and God's power persists. Elijah is gone and Elisha takes up his mantle. And he continues to play the role of Joshua as he heads to Jericho. It's already in Jericho, I suppose, but as he deals with the men of Jericho in verse 19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Do note here, verse 19, at the end of it, the land is unfruitful, is parallel to what Elisha does to heal it. At the end of verse 21, it says, from now on, Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it, meaning the water. So Jericho has been rebuilt, and though things are somewhat pleasant, death still marks it. And that's no mistake. The city is under a curse. You'll remember that when Joshua conquered Jericho, he pronounced a curse over it. And way back when we first met Ahab at the end of 1 Kings chapter 16, we read this. In Ahab's days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abraham, his firstborn son, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segov, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Jericho is curseville. And they come to Elisha and say, can you fix this? And Elisha turns Kirstville into Graceburg. He turns curse into blessing. God is with Elisha. His power persists. 
His mercy is still available to all who will come to his prophet in faith. We don't have to think too hard about how the final prophet, the Lord Jesus, functions in just this way. We who are weak and weary, sick and sore in our sins, come to him and we say, we know you can make us well. And Jesus is mighty to save, happy to heal us, to make us well, to turn curse into blessing. We deserve curse. And yet God, in his wonderful mercy, gives us the blessing that only Jesus deserves. This is really encouraging. If a town like Curseville, Jericho, can be turned into a place of blessing, dead people can be brought to life. People living under the, the curse of sin, enslaved to evil, can be freed, and made alive. It means sinners like you and me can be forgiven. And every wrong you've done, every right you've failed to do, given. Every idol you've worshipped can be drowned beneath the blood of Christ. God's grace always outpaces our sin. He's always ready to make us well. We need only come to him in faith. Elisha's work at Jericho is to reverse the curse pronounced by Joshua. The water is healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. And so we've seen him part the Jordan like Moses and Joshua and Elijah. And now we've seen him bless Jericho. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He hasn't gone anywhere. He's with Elisha. God's servants change, but God's power persists. God remains. And so Elisha makes his way back to Bethel, where we find one of the weirdest and one of my favorite stories of Scripture. If you didn't read ahead, this is going to surprise you a bit. Verse 23, verse 23. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Lesson simple, don't make fun of bald people. 
<laughs> what, is, what is going on here? It's, it's not that Elisha is follically challenged. You see, Elijah was known as a hairy sort of man. Okay? And so when they're calling Elisha bald head, they're not just commenting on his appearance. I mean, they may or may not be. But what they are getting at is they're undermining everything this chapter has been teaching us. They're saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Not with you, Elisha. Elijah is gone. Yahweh is gone with him. It's no mistake where they are. They're in Bethel, you know, home of the main line religion of the golden calf. There's one set up there. Jeroboam put it there. They are telling Elisha, you are nothing like Elijah. Go on up and worship Baal with the rest of us. Go on up and get out of town. You know where you can go? You can go on up out of here. Elisha says, really? And he proves that he speaks the word of the Lord. Some might say he bears witness to his prophetic status. I heard some amens, yeah. Puns, that's great, puns. The bears come out and they tear apart these boys. And we we are tempted to I mean, we aren't just tempted. We did. We laugh at this passage a little bit. But it's deadly serious. It's not just that he, like, why bears, right? Do you remember in Leviticus, we saw earlier prophets were torn apart by lions, and we asked why, and the Lord promises in Leviticus with a curse that those who do not listen to his word and walk contrary to him, that he will let loose wild beasts against them. Okay? And so his curse, God's word, is coming against God's enemies. Those who have proven themselves to be the seed of the serpent, opposed to the work of God, find that they are not victorious, that God is in control. God's judgment comes upon them. Children, some might cause you to think that you are because you are young and cute, do not have to worry about the judgment of God. You do. These boys are probably only 10 to 12 years old. It's a good word for all of us. Men, women, and children, all of humanity is responsible for worshiping the Lord as God. And all of us who set ourselves up as his enemies earn his judgment. There is a day of judgment coming. And on that day, the wicked will find the fire of God's judgment far worse than the fire Elijah called down from Mount Carmel. There's a day of judgment coming and those who mock God will discover God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Beasts far worse than bears 
will swallow whole the enemies of God. We ought not walk away from this passage with grins on our face, but fear in our hearts. Friends, do not be foolish. Be afraid. And turn to the Lord. Uh, The day of judgment is coming, yes, but today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation because of God's goodness to us, because God the Father sent God the Son in God the Holy Spirit to redeem his enemies from sin, to save those who deserve his judgment from death, so that he might give those who have earned the curse of eternal condemnation the blessing of eternal life. Today is the day of salvation. Yes, Jesus is coming on the day of judgment. And he will vanquish his enemies. He will avenge his saints. He will right every wrong. But today is the day of salvation. He does not wish that any would perish, but that all would come to him in faith. Some think that they can get away with mocking Christ. Not ultimately. He's coming. He will call down curses far worse than Elisha. But today is the day of salvation because when he was mocked, he did not revile in return, but set himself on a course to a cross. Remember, they threw a purple robe across his shoulders, ripped hair from his head, pressed a crown of thorns on his brow, mocked him. Behold the king. They did not mock him by telling him to go up, bald head. No, they bid him come down. Luke chapter 25, verse 35. He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed against him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. No. Jesus did not call down fire from heaven or bears from out of the forests. He did not save himself so that he could save others, so that he could save sinners like you and I who deserve to die the death of thieves. He hung there and bled He hung there as life slowly strangled out of him so that he could save sinners like us. Like the thief on the other side of him. 
Luke 23, verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the mercy and grace of God. It is scandalous. God takes the worst of the worst, you and me, those who have rebelled against them, enemies, and brings them into his family, brings us into paradise, makes us his friends. There's a wonderful clip somewhere out there when Alistair Begg talks about this particular passage. And I'm not going to run through the whole thing with you. But the high point of it is, he sets up this whole scenario where the thief on the cross that Jesus told he would be with him in paradise shows up uh, at heaven and everybody's sort of confused why he's there. Right? And they're like, how, how did you get in here? Right? And ultimately the thief says, the man on the middle cross, he said I could come. Brothers and sisters, this is what happens for all of us. We are all vile and wretched. We are sinners, angry at the God who made us and has done nothing but good to us. We hate him. And yet in his mercy and his grace, he draws us to himself. He changes our hearts so that we come, we say, forgive me. And he says, you can come. He gives life. There really are only two ways to go. You can be like the thief who mocks Christ. You can be like the other thief who comes to him in faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You can be like the mocking boys who have bears set upon them. Or you can be like the citizens of Jericho who come to God's great prophet asking for healing. He can make you well. Verse 25, from there he went on to Mount Carmel and from there he returned to Samaria. So he goes to Elijah's mountain and then to the place where Elijah ministered. Here's the big point. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? God hasn't gone anywhere. He is with Elisha. God is not limited in how he can work in his world. He works all things together for the good of his people and for his glory according to the counsel of his will. He is infinitely wise and infinitely good. No man can bring any charge of injustice against him. All of us at the end of time will fall down and worship him for what he has done, for who he is, and for how he orchestrated all things to his wonderful and good end. God is the God of the garden in Eden. God is the God of Israel in its heyday over Solomon. 
God is the God over this divided kingdom when Elijah is ministering and when Elisha is ministering. God is God in the exile. He's God after the exile. God is God in the first century when Jesus is walking with men. God is God in this century now as Jesus has filled his church with his Holy Spirit. God hasn't gone anywhere. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And do you want to see just one last piece of typology as we close here? Not only does Elijah point us to Moses and Elisha point us to Joshua, Elijah points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, and Elisha points us to the church. You see, Elijah is taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. But Jesus Christ does him one better. He dies before he ascends. Elijah has a double portion of his spirit sent down to Elisha that he might carry on his work. The Lord Jesus is raised. What does he send to his people? His Holy Spirit. So that his work isn't wrapped up in one individual. His power is not limited to a pastor. No, no, no. God's Holy Spirit fills up his church in Nellie's Ford, Virginia. And in Beijing, China and in all nations. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God and his body is assembled right here. God's work continues. Jesus Christ is seated at his right hand. He's feeling just fine, friends. He's going to return soon. And we look out and we go, where is the Lord, the God of Jesus? With us. With us. Right here, God's word and work continue. God hasn't gone anywhere. Let's work out his purposes in us. We are the instruments of righteousness in his hand. We are his holy people, testifying to his infinite greatness and heralding the good news of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, risen, and returning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for taking scoundrels like us and making us your sons by your grace, by faith. We thank you that you have united us with Christ by your Holy Spirit such that his death becomes our death and his life becomes our life. We thank you that Christ became a curse for us so that we might be redeemed. We thank you that when we die in this life, we ascend to heaven. We thank you that Christ is returning and that we will all resurrect with new bodies. We thank you that Christ is seated on the throne, that he rules the world with truth and grace, and that all nations will sing joy. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.